Music collaboration software that works over the internet is a software challenge that has not been fully tackled. I know this because I'm a musician and I've been wanting to collaborate with people for a long time. It's hard to find the right software. On today's internet, there are people who are collaborating intensively on programming projects, journalism, artistic projects, but the tools for collaborating specifically on music have not yet become popular. It is hard to find the right tool that you can use to collaborate with other musicians. Blend.io is a social music collaboration tool, a GitHub for musicians, and I've been using it myself. I enjoy it tremendously, so I wanted to have a guest on the show, Alan Grow, who joins the show to talk about how to build this social version control system for musicians. We talk about how to make digital audio workstations interoperable, uh, as well as where music is headed. This was a very enjoyable show because I'm a musician. All of the music on this show is stuff that I've written, and it was a real treat to talk to somebody who really understands a problem space and is trying to tackle a problem space that is quite important to me. Uh, it's a piece of software I'm really happy to see in the world. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Alan Groh is an engineer working on Blend.io. Alan, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. I'd like to start by congratulating you on a very cool product that I have been using, which is Blend, and it is like a GitHub for musicians. I am a musician myself, so I have enjoyed using this. Can you explain just at a high level what Blend.io is? Um, it is a music collaboration platform. Okay. Uh and you know, I also just want to say I I had the idea for Blend a year ago. I know a lot of people have had this idea, uh, and you were already working on Blend at that time. But I just want to say it's it is exactly what I wanted out of this like collaboration tool. It's basically uh, I don't know. It's it's really cool to find out this that this thing actually existed. It's ba- it's like. Um, a musical collaboration tool with Dropbox as the version control system. And this is like, this is the product that I have been wanting to use. Um, So getting into like the technical aspects of it, um, the way that people write electronic music, and listeners may not know because most listeners are software engineers, they may or may not work with music. The way that electronic music is made is with a digital audio workstation. And each of these digital audio workstations are a kind of walled garden. It's almost like you have a bunch of different companies that are releasing their own versions of Photoshop, except it's for music. So that's where I want to start. How how has the number... There's all these different digital audio workstations. How did you look at that problem when you were sitting down and starting to create Blend? In terms of the fragmentation? Yeah, exactly. Like, How are you going to tackle that fragmentation thing? Well, I think it was fairly obvious um, from early on that um, a few DAWs were going to be really important. Um, so I think Blend launched with um, Ableton Live and um, has added support for, for other DAWs just sort of as we went, as people asked for them. And um, it's fairly easy for us to um, expose collaboration for a particular, for a particular DAW. So um, I think at this point we support you know a dozen or more different DAWs. And is there interoperability between, so if I, if I make a song in Ableton and I save it as an Ableton version, is there compatibility between that Ableton file and GarageBand or FL Studio? Um, not in those specific cases, but there is actually some cross DAW, um, integration that we've built. Um, a lot of artists like to just for a variety of reasons, publish their projects as stems. Um, so for listeners, stems are just basically like if you have a four track song, vocals, guitar, drums, um, you know, and then maybe some keyboards or something, you would have four different wave files, all the same length, um, and, and that lets you basically, you know, transform one of those instruments or voices at a time. Um, so a lot of artists like to, to publish uh, STEMS projects just because of the simplicity of it. Um, and um, if, you, if you publish a, bl- a STEMS project on Blend, you can actually pull that STEMS project as an Ableton Live session. So we create an Ableton project for you on the fly and drop in all the tracks um, and set the markers and everything. So it's basically 
ready to start remixing. Now, do most of these these digital audio workstations, these DAWs, do these have a way to export all export your entire song in WAV files? Because WAV is obviously an interoperability uh, layer that you could have. Um, I mean, I would say probably most DAWs, just because of the nature of creating music, can can bounce the session to um, to WAV files. Okay. Yeah. I mean, my experience is you have to do it track by track, which is which mm-hmm. is pretty huh, pretty frustrating. I've because I've been trying to. I'm an FL Studio user. I've been trying to work with friends who are mainly Ableton users over the years, and it is always a headache. It's yeah, that that particular combination is pretty painful. <laughs> and and we don't uh, we don't have um, you know a lot of tooling to make that that part of it easy. Although those are two project file formats that we have actually a lot of info on. Um, Ableton, it turns out, is just um, you know compressed XML. So it's a very open format, actually. Um, FL Studio is um, a binary format, but it actually um, they're they're pretty open with giving specs to people. So we we have the specs for um, .fl Studio files, and and we can parse you know what plugins are used and things like that. FL Studio is a much older project, right? I believe so. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly the origins mm. of it, but. Um, it used to not be called FL Studio for it was for Fruity Loops reasons exactly. Then... <laughs> Fruity Loops, great, great name for a product. Uh, I started using it as Fruity Loops. I love that name. Um, so why wasn't why wasn't MIDI the the thing that could be used to effectively collaborate between these digital audio workstations? MIDI is this what is it? Musical input, digital something. Uh, but it's basically like you can, uh, you know, write something on a keyboard and it's in this MIDI format, which is just like a transposition or a co- composition format that you could transpose to any instruments. Why wasn't, why didn't MIDI become like the standard? Well, I mean, you know, MIDI is a really important standard um, as a digital musician. You know, you've got, you know, like all these different devices and they, they talk via MIDI and uh, the MIDI standards is actually still getting extended. Um, Blend's parent company, Rolly, has um, pushed for this expressive MIDI um, extension that allows you to do polyphonic pitch bend. Um, so with just the standard MIDI, you can only really like bend you know one note or like all the notes basically by the same amount. Um, but Rolly has hardware that lets you actually physically bend multiple notes in different directions at the same time. So they released another extension to that. So I mean, there there are people still working um, with the MIDI spec, and there's a standards body. And I mean, I think it's a really good, um, it's a really, um, it's a really nice, simple protocol for a lot of things. I think it, you know, for musicians, it doesn't quite define enough for you. I mean, if you just open a MIDI file, um, you know, like Windows uh, Sound.mid or what, you know. <laughs> One of those, it's, you know, it's going to be played with default instruments and um, it's just going to sound really um, just kind of old school and dry. And musicians, um, digital musicians these days rely on a lot of plugins. Um, and samples. And samples, exactly. And so MIDI by itself, it's like, you know, it's not enough to get, you know, a real um, production out the door. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to use other things. So, so, so okay, so Blend, uh for people who haven't seen it, it's kind, you you open when you open it up, it looks kind of like a Facebook feed, except instead of posts, there are these different songs. People can collaborate on different songs in these feeds. Um, in each in each of these songs, you can you can pull it, you can push to it, kind of like a GitHub repository. So, what is the workflow? the typical workflow for a group of people that are collaborating on a song on blend? Um, the typical workflow, I mean, it, it, it kind of depends, but the typical workflow is really, you know, someone, someone has an initial idea and puts it out there. I mean, it's just like code, right? Like, you know, you, you don't sort of collaborate on the version 0.1. It's usually one person writes that and then other people see the potential and say, here's a pull request. Well, Blend has the same sort of thing. Um, you see a project that you like on Blend, uh, there's a pull button, which um, 
basically forks that project into your Dropbox where you can modify it. And then you can publish updates in your own lineage to that project. Um, so in terms of how that collaboration actually works between the people, it kind of depends. Like, um, you know, sometimes people are doing a back and forth collaboration. It's like you and your friend, you know. Um, so they'll fork your project and they'll publish an update to it. And then you'll fork their fork of the project and publish updates to it. And um, and then it just sort of goes on, you know, back and forth like that. All those versions in between, the intermediate versions that you're still working on, are still there. Um, but, you know, basically it's a, it's a back and forth um, collaboration that you would see in the lineage in that case. But other collaborations are different too. I mean, I could give you some other examples. Well, sure. I mean, let's, let's, uh, you know, what I'm, one thing I'm really curious about is the, the Dropbox tooling that you had to build for version control. I mean, in terms of like different workflows, I'm sure there are as you could have as many workflows as people have for collaborating in GitHub repositories. I mean, all the different companies I've worked at have had different workflows for how the programmers on their team collaborate with uh, a repository. So what is the tooling that you had to build on top of Dropbox to turn it into a musical version control system? Um, I mean, it, it really, Dropbox was kind of the easiest way to, to um, roll out an MVP of the idea of Blend. Um, it meant that um, we didn't have to solve um, the file synchronization problem and all the cross-platform problems and you know, cloud storage and all that sort of stuff. We didn't have to solve those problems up front, which I think, you know, doing that stuff from scratch would have probably pushed the launch of Blend out like a year or something. Um, instead, it was like, okay, everyone has Dropbox. You know, most musicians have Dropbox, so you know, let's just let's just use that and build something that sort of sits on top of that storage layer. Um, so, I mean, in terms of how we use Dropbox, it's not terribly complicated, really. Basically. Um, you sign up for Blend. One of the first things that happens is we ask um, to use a folder inside of your Dropbox for Blend projects. And you say, okay. And, um, and then um, when you're you know, publishing files and stuff on Blend, um, you put your projects inside of that Dropbox folder and then you hit publish on Blend. And when you hit publish on Blend, they get copied from your Dropbox folder into a sort of official place, you know, in, in, in the cloud. And that official place is where other people, uh, pull it from. But basically all the storage stuff at this point is, is, um, it works off of Dropbox. And, um, I actually have an announcement, uh, related to that, um, that you and other blend users might be interested in. Um, we're, we are, we're very close to, to replacing Dropbox. Oh, wow. Something better. Wow. Uh, that's cool. So, so okay, so the current workflow is like where I upload my song, it goes into my Dropbox, and then also gets copied to the blend, uh, the blend servers somewhere. So so that if I were to delete my own version of the song on my Dropbox, it would still exist in the file history lineage uh, of Blend. Right, it would still exist there, but you know, it'd be inaccessible to other Blend users. Interesting. So, are you saying that you did you roll your own um, like f- file system like to replace Dropbox? Um, yeah. So this is something that we've been working on for actually a couple of years now, um, and uh, I think we're going to roll it out relatively soon. I can't actually, you know, oh, okay. promise a release date or anything like that, but um, it's very close. We've been beta testing it, and everything seems to work fine. Um, you know, while Dropbox was a great way to get get blend built quickly and test the idea and you know see if this was actually something that that worked for people um there are a number of limitations and and things that i think um having a little more control over the storage layer and what's going on client side and that sort of thing uh can be improved i imagine there's also conversion drop-off when it's like uh, connector dropbox and users are like well i don't want to do that yeah exactly um for sure. I mean, yeah, there's, there's definitely like, it's kind of a, it's a point in the funnel that people get stuck at. Um, it's a source of confusion sometimes, um, in terms of, you know, how exactly do you put the things in there? Um, going back to what we talked about earlier, um, about like, you know, bouncing out these like rendered wave tracks from your DAW session. 
Um, that's really important to do so that other musicians that are collaborating with you on Blend can can hear the results of the music, you know, and like without actually like opening up in a DAW and making sure they have all the plugins, they they can actually hear a preview of what this project sounds like and see if it's interesting to them and something they want to like collaborate on. Um, so, but but a lot of these DAWs don't. I mean, they don't they don't automate that for you necessarily. So people will forget to to add those audio previews or um, they'll forget that they're actually using a proprietary plugin of some sort that they didn't mean to use um, or, you know, um, you know, that's basically going to cause, cause problems for collaborators. So Ableton has this little collect all and save thing, um, which you're supposed to remember to do to sort of like pull all of the samples that you've used from like, you know, your own personal sample library into the project itself. So you collect all and save and then you go to blend and you like, you know, publish the project. A lot of people forget to do collect all and save. And then that means that, you know, when you when you pull one of these projects, you're like, oh crap, all the samples are missing. I can't really do anything with that. So it's something that we'd like to, you know, actually warn people about earlier in the process, you know, before they're even publishing. Say like, oh hey, you know, there's actually some missing samples. Or maybe just turn on an option to to automatically you know, pull in those samples when you're publishing so you don't have to worry about it. I, I have been aggravated by FL Studio so many times over the years where I change my operating system or something and I save my FL Studio files in the wrong way and I don't realize that the samples are soft links or some kind of soft mm-hmm. link. And then I open up the, the, the my FL Studio song a couple months later and it's like looking for the sample cannot find the sample i'm like well great that's in the operating system that i reformatted and it's gone forever um and that is just ah that's so heartbreaking but i mean that's i think that was in a pre-dropbox era now uh now i think i i think i my workflows take care of that but um right so you you store your samples your all of your samples in dropbox separately at this point at this point i do although Although I don't think I have that Dropbox file synced with my digital audio workstation, which is a really sloppy uh, state of affairs, but um, I'm sure it's not the sloppiest state of affairs of of uh, musician electronic musicians out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, can you talk at all about the Dropbox replacement? You built? So I I did a show a while ago actually about. Um, Dropbox. I mean, this is kind of meta, but Dropbox uh, moving off of S3, like moving off of because they recently moved off of uh-huh. Amazon, they moved to their own data center, um, uh-huh. and it was funny because they were, they had just had to rebuild all of the the functionality that S3 gave them. They had to rebuild basically their own S3. So I'm wondering if you had to do something similar, or if you moved to S3 and then you had to build Dropbox tooling on top of that. Um, I mean, that's that that was a really interesting development, I thought. I mean, we watch Dropbox very closely because we depend on them, you know, for for all of our storage um, stuff. And, um, you know, everything about, you know, um, that migration was interesting, I thought. You know, the way that they developed, um, you know, new custom hardware and the, the way that they actually tested things and the way that they, they cut they cut over. I mean, like, you know, it's kind of boggles the the mind to even imagine that you can do that. Um, so, you know, I, I actually think Dropbox, um, is a really, really great sync client. I mean, compared to all the sync clients that are out there. Oh yeah. I think it it was, it was so funny because, you know, around this time where they were migrating, there were so many people that were saying, Oh, Dropbox, like they don't even come out with a new feature in two years, blah, 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 blah. And then they come out with this big article and it's like, yeah, we we spent the last two years moving off of the cloud. And I was like, well, okay, that silences the doubters. Right. I mean, that was a major engineering effort for sure. So, I mean, when we looked at, um, initially looked at like, uh, replicating what Dropbox had built, um, we were, uh, you know, obviously pretty, pretty daunted by that. And it, it definitely like, um, gave us pause, you know, in, in considering like whether or not we even wanted to get into that game. Um, what gave us some optimism about doing it is that the, um, the sort of file access patterns that musicians have are very different from general purpose file access patterns. And that allowed us to kind of say, okay, we don't need to build something that is really fancy and can handle all of these general purpose use cases. We just need something that works for, for musicians. Um, 
so, you know, like if, if you've got um, an Ableton project, for instance, you know, you have a .als file, which is your sort of session file, and then it references all these other files, like, you know, samples and plugins and stuff. The samples and plugins don't really change. Hmm. You know, you've, you've got true. these assets. Yeah. You've got these assets on disk and, and you're transforming them in the DAW. Maybe you're clipping them or, you know, like running them through any number of filters. But the actual source files there aren't changing. So like once they're in your project, they're they're just kind of immutable. So you don't really have to worry about like, oh gosh, what what happens when someone updates something in the middle of this gigantic file? So we didn't really have to we we you know, we actually uh, measured this for a couple of years and, you know, we realized, you know, yeah, people weren't actually, um, you know, changing large assets in place or anything. Um, so we didn't, we didn't have to do what Dropbox does, which they actually do, you know, a, uh, a block based, you know, content data store with deduplication and all that stuff. Um, we could get away with something a little simpler. So were you looking to save space or were there some kind of primitives that you're trying to create um for some other reason i mean it is really the the simplicity of it that that sort of drove our our approach to to blend sync um uh yeah essentially you know once you sync one of these large um wave files to to cloud storage you're not usually going to have to worry about updating it in place so you don't really have to optimize for that scenario hmm Okay. Um, so I'd love to talk more about, I mean, so, are, well, huh. so can you talk any more about that, that process? Like were there, cause if you have to build your own Dropbox, I mean, are there, uh, Dropbox for music basically, what are the other kinds of, what kinds of file synchronization issues did you have to build or like race conditions or like, I mean, I just hear about all these nightmare scenarios that Dropbox had to solve for. I'm just very curious if you, if you had to build anything similar. Or if it was on S3 and a lot of those things got factored out and you just had to think more about the music level problems. Right. So we are using S3 as the cloud the cloud storage for this. So this is a thing that we we built on top of S3. So that layer of things is taken care of. You know, we don't have to worry about, you know, physically provisioning, you know, file servers and redundancy and all that kind of stuff, um, which you know, having that sort of physical layer taken care of by someone else is definitely something I think we want to, we want to keep, um, um, in terms of like kind of the, the sort of tricky sync scenarios you can get into. Um, the other interesting thing is like, you know, I mean, you're a coder and I'm a coder and probably most people listening to this are coders and we probably all use Git and GitHub and stuff. And, um, we've probably, I would just hazard a guess most most people listening have resolved a merge conflict at some point. And so, you know, <laughs> it's for most for the vast majority of developers it's a kind of still an unpleasant scary thing, you know, when a merge conflict happens and um, you know, especially if you're trying to get something else done, it just sort of gets in the way and you know, it's it's sometimes really not even clear how to proceed because you have to kind of you have to look at the intent on either side of the merge and make sure that you're resolving the intent. Um, and it's I mean, always Friday tool. at 5 p.m. And it's always Friday at 5 p.m. <laughs> there's really no tool that can help you. Like, this is a problem that a human has to solve by, like, looking and determining intent. Um, so, you know, kind of how I, like, talked about, like, um, you know, just looking at, at what musicians specifically need and sort of, making simplifying assumptions about that. This was another place that we were able to make a simplifying assumption. And I think Dropbox has also um, made made the same simplifying assumption, at least maybe in the common case, is that um, you don't really have to worry about, um, about file conflicts if you're not giving people access to a shared folder. So on Dropbox, you know, you, you can obviously like share a folder with someone else and then you can both overwrite things inside there and that's where Dropbox starts doing the revision thing and they actually do have like conflict resolution facilities in there they're like yes you know yeah it copy, copies like the, your folders yeah it's kind of like the dot ridge dot rej thing that that happens when a patch fails to to apply you go in there and you look at the two different versions you compare side by side and you figure out what to do so if we can avoid situations where you know people actually are modifying that same exact file, um, then we can kind of avoid these issues. So the way Blend works is that, you know, you're, you and your collaborators are not editing the same file. 
um, you are um, basically forking versions that each of you has published, and versions are kind of immutable once they've they've been published. Got and it. If, oh, if you get in a situation where like you've made some changes and published them as a project, and they've made some change changes and published them as a separate forked project, then I mean, if you actually wanted to merge those changes together, that's something that you would do by hand. You basically like you can pull both projects and drag and drop things in between, but um, you know, some of the some of these types of merge conflicts are just they're so hard to resolve uh, in the context of like DAWs with binary files flying around that it's you know it, it's not even worth trying to build a, a tool that that helps people do that. It's better to just like you know give people access to the raw materials and then you know they can do what they need to do. Right. Okay. But so now I think I get what you're saying about the primitives, where basically if you can figure out these. Uh, essentially com- commonalities between each version of a song as people are saving them, then it becomes much cheaper to build an append-only file system to where every update is just an append and it's very easy to roll back. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, um, in the Dropbox era, we have really leveraged you know, that sort of immutability Um and, th- and then with BlendSync, this new storage uh, system that we're rolling out along with a client, um, uh, leveraging the immutability um, aspect even even harder. So yeah, basically, if if people aren't overwriting the same files, then you kind of you don't get into those situations. You still might need to, you know, in future provide some tooling to let people sort of merge stuff together. But you know, doing that even like for one particular DAW is a pretty daunting task. So, so yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty much on, on you as the, the user um, to resolve those situations or to just sort of collaborate a little bit differently so that they don't arise. Okay, let's talk about the front end. The front end, like I said, has a similar social network feel to Facebook. There's likes, there's a feed, there's a place to post at the top. You can post a project, you can ask a question, you can post a tip. There also are features like a marketplace. There's some other different news feeds. What did you use to build the front end? So Blend was started, um, gosh, I'm going to have to get my history right. I think 2013 Blend was launched. Um, uh, The front end um, at that point, I mean, it was um, Jade for templates, um, Stylus for CSS, and then just essentially jQuery soup. Oh. I'm sure. I'm sure when it was initially built. I mean, this is 2013, right? So, yeah. you know, there wasn't a clear um, successor to any of that. And I'm sure, you know, well, there was Rails, right? Well, there was Rails, but I mean, in terms of like, you know, what do you do on the front? Oh, end oh okay, of course, these, of course. If you want these rich interactions, of course, okay. Um, was yeah, it, people was, were still using jQuery. Wasn't there Backbone, Angular? Yeah, people were starting to get into that stuff. I mean, that was the nascent days. Exactly. Like Backbone and Angular were definitely still there. You know, obviously Angular 2 was, it just came out and React was just a twinkle in someone's eye. <laughs> right. Oh, so, so is it still, still built with that stuff? I mean, I, I know you, you have a, it's a small team. Like I know you're focused on this back, back end sync stuff. Um, do you have intentions to move to something like React? We did actually about, um, a year, year and a half ago, we moved um, the core project publishing experience. So that's blend.io slash projects. Um, when you go there, you see like a, you know, a list of all the projects that you've got in your blend Dropbox folder and you can publish them or, you know, preview them or, you know, it's, it's basically the core of the, the blend publishing experience. Um, and that was a jQuery soup. And then we rewrote it in React. Oh, and I think, you know, this was, you know, a year and a half ago, React was pretty immature, but I think even then it was already a a pretty big win in terms of just being able to go in and modify um, those components and reason about them and stuff. And there is a uh, unbelievable amount of enthusiasm behind that project. Uh, Tell me about it. Um, (laughs) So for, for BlendSync, you know, we have a client that's built in Electron um, so it's cross-platform. It runs on um, Windows and OS 
or sorry, Mac OS. <laughs> runs on Windows and Mac OS, and it actually runs on Linux too because I use Linux, but don't tell anyone that just yet. <laughs> um, but it's a cross-platform, like a uh, little sync client that that gives you some other nice hooks into Blend. Um, and yeah, it, it uses React in the front end, and it uses Electron for um, you know the bones. So that Blend sync client that is unreleased at this point. Unreleased at this point, okay. but um, check back soon, I guess. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to using that. So I can use my FL Studio stuff, and I can use a Blend Sync client on my Windows machine, and I can sync with, um, I guess I could sync with my, if I wanted to do stuff between FL Studio and Ableton, maybe I could interop with my Windows machine, or I could just interop with uh, another friend who's on a Mac using Ableton um, and use that sync client just as our collaboration space, right? Right. So, I mean, it basically, it's, you know, a little tray um, app and it it, um, gives you like a, you know, a heads up view of your most recently modified projects. And, um, you know, once you pull up the little, the little tray window, you can hit publish on one of them. Um, you can see what remix contests and things are being run on Blend. There's oh, always awesome. new ones, you know. Um, and uh, it gives you a little notifications tab, too. So, you know, Blend has a lot of the features of a social network. It has messaging and follows and liking and things like that. So you can see those notifications in a tab. So you don't necessarily have to leave, like, fully leave the comfort of your DAW um, and go over to the Blend world. You've kind of got this this thing in between um, that handles file syncing, and it also just gives you like a really compact interaction with Blend. So I recently checked out Blend. Um, I don't remember why I clicked on it or why I found it, but um, I saw the remix contest for Havoc, who is one half of the rap group Mob Deep, and I'm a huge fan of their music. And so, like, I obviously entered that remix contest, and, it, like, I just had so much fun with that. I was, I, I don't know, I did not expect to have so much fun, but it was, a, it was, it was really enjoyable. Um, and Yeah, that's, I mean, that's awesome and so cool that the guy, you know, had these, this unpublished vocal track, you know, and he just, he's like, sure, I'll just throw it up there and see right. what people do with it. Is that the most popular project that you've seen on Blend? Um, no, um, actually the most popular project, um, well, popularity, there's different metrics for that, right? <laughs> but, um, the most popular project is the, um, the Ableton, uh, Berkeley course. Oh, um, of course. Assignment number one. Yeah. So a lot of people discovered blend through that. And, um, it's, it's a fantastic online course if you're getting into, um, you know, digital music making, um, and you want to learn more about Ableton. Um, you can basically just hop on Blend, pull that project, and it kind of walks you through the basics of stuff. And uh, Aaron Barra, the you know the um, the musician who produced the course, is uh, really great. Explain how that course worked. How did it leverage Blend? Uh, well, essentially, you know, you've got like your um, you've got your course on Coursera, um, and you know, you do your you know submit assignments and you know, maybe ask questions and, you know, Coursera handles some stuff as well. But um, in order to actually, like, submit your assignments, you just publish them on Blend. So you you essentially fork, in Blend parlance, pull, you you fork the assignment one project, um, you make the modifications that they want you to do in that first assignment, and then you publish it, and then someone actually reviews it. Cool. Okay. That's really cool. Um so it is the the co- collaborative work environment between students and teachers for music production. So the the front end that is sort of like a SoundCloud, it's like a feed of tracks that you can play. Do you do you have to prefetch those audio files so that they load quickly? Um I don't think we ever um looked into that it was one of those like if it if it becomes a noticeable issue mm. we're going to optimize it um but until then don't prematurely optimize <laughs> um uh 
they are streams, so you know, obviously you're not loading the entire MP3 before right. it starts to play. Yeah. So you've worked on the newsfeed algorithms and the social graph of Blend.io. What what kinds of things have you, have you worked on that fall under those that purview? What um, you know, what kinds of things are you calculating on the fly when a user logs in, and what are you doing in terms of batch processing on you know, because you have to create a newsfeed for each user, and there's this big complicated social graph. There's all these different interactions with music going right. on. How did you build that? Well, I think um, the initial um, so there's there's two different ways to do like a, a timeline or a feed. You can do push or you can do pull, and I think at some scale, then you you kind of have to do push. Mm-hmm. So Twitter operates at push, and um, Instagram operates at push. Um, uh, in terms of like a fan out model, basically like, you know, when I publish right. a photo, there's there's actually a physical message or notification that gets fanned out to everyone that's following me. Um, and then that's, and their their timelines are basically built off, you know, the sequence of messages that has arrived for them. Um, so Blend uh, initially, and I think this is probably the easier way to, to build a feed um, from the get-go um, because it's more flexible. Um, it's basically just um, an algorithm that is calculated on the fly when you load that slash feed page. Okay, so so it's pull for now. So it's pull for now. Right. Um, so longer term, if there's significant scale in the newsfeed area, we just did a show about event sourcing. I don't know if you know the event sourcing pattern, but have you heard mm-hmm. of that? Yep. Yeah, is, is, that, is that how the push-based feed kind of works where you you know a user does something like listens to a song or likes something and that registers as an event in the system and then that event propagates to the queue the event queue or and then and then gets goes off of that event queue to update all of the the feeds of all the people that are listening to it uh all of the the subscribers that would be listening right. to that event that sounds like a way that you could do the push-based newsfeed. Exactly, and that's kind of what I'm alluding to with the the sort of fan out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difficulty there is that if you want to change, you know, for instance, what things get fanned out and what things don't, or like, you know, decide that some activity is just not important enough to show in the feed, then you've got you know all the state sitting there that you have to you have to maybe eliminate or correct or hide or something. Um, so I think it's easier for people when you're initially building a feed to just you know run a run a query that um, gives you, that render that gives you all the data for the feed and then you can change that that query that algorithm when you need to. Um, uh, in the blend case, um, yeah, it was kind of like that from day one. Uh, we use Mongo on the back end, um, so there's you know some pretty wild Mongo aggregate queries that happen <laughs> when you load your when you load your feed. But uh, I, you know, soon after joining Blend, I uh, I spent some a lot of time just optimizing the heck out of that thing. So those queries run fast; and they don't have to grab things you don't need, and you know, so you're not waiting, you know, seconds for your feed to load or mm-hmm. something. So yeah, well, it seems like it's kind of unique for a social network because it does feel like I, I do like the GitHub analogy because it's more like you know you just go. You mostly go to Blend to do some kind of thing that has to, like you go to the site to do some, I mean, sometimes you'll probably go there to socialize and to interact with other users, but a large part of the draw is it's the utility and you're doing something with it just kind of intermittently and then you're going back to your digital audio workstation to keep working on music. Um, So it seems like, you know, building in, uh, you know, addictive loops and stuff into the newsfeed algorithms in the social graph it's it's not as necessary to uh to make blend.io do what it needs to do no and you know we we did a little bit of that um i mean if you have if you've had blend.io's slash feed open for any period of time you've probably noticed that it does actually notify you when new feed stories appear um the way it does that is just by polling though Mm. so um but yeah, I mean, um, it. You know, when I when I joined, the feed was kind of, I guess I would say, just not just not that interesting, mm-hmm. and it, the noise was pretty high relative to the signal. 
Uh, in particular, you know, one of the problems that you'd have if you just had it be just like a purely event-based feed would be like, oh, so-and-so followed Moby and so-and-so's <laughs> brother followed Moby and everyone's dog followed Moby. It'd just be like, that'd be like all your news stories. Moby's on blend, by the way. You know, all, saw. all your news stories yeah, were just, you know, kind of the same the same thing. Like once something would blow up, it would just kill your feed. So one of the first things we did was um, was uh, do roll-up on those um basically on the on the object of the story you know there's subjects you know uh jeff followed moby jeff would be the subject moby would be the object in that sort of sentence um so we did we did essentially like uh aggregate roll-ups on this on the object so everyone who followed moby would just get sort of lumped into the same news story you know jeff alan and 354 other people followed moby so right. that that sort of that made the the signal to noise ratio much better. Just that one change. Sure. Have you talked to Moby about how he uses Blend? Um, you know, I think by the time I was working on Blend, he was off doing other things. Although, um, you, we might be doing another another feature with him. It's kind of still still a potential thing. But uh, but yeah, hmm. I think it's interesting that when he published his projects, he actually took the time to publish them in like you know four different formats so if you're you know a logic user you've you've got a logic project for it if you're an ableton user you've got that oh wow wow what a generous guy um totally man i heard him on some podcasts recently he's quite an entertaining speaker too Um, yeah (laughs) so uh where what do you think we're headed towards a time where collaborative music making is going to be a little in, in in wider adoption because it is interesting that there it's just not widely done. You see collaboration right. in all kinds of other projects, management thingies, and I you know I think you mentioned you're a musician too. I'm sure this must have been aggravating you as much as much as it aggravates aggravates me that it is freaking hard to find people to collaborate with on electronic music, and it seems like it should be so easy. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's hard to find people to collaborate with in person as well, you know, to find someone that you're, you know, comfortable jamming with. Who doesn't and, flake. Yeah. I mean, when I lived in New York, that was it was almost impossible to find someone and, you know, line up the times and, you know, make sure that both people were interested. And, you know, by the time you just like finish setting it up it was just like oh he'd already done so much work not to I mention that, not to mention the sorry to interrupt you but not to mention the fact that the way that we worked with music now like the digital audio workstation thing to me is is a somewhat solo experience like to be in the same place in the same room working on something yeah okay maybe it makes sense for the chain smokers and makes sense for some other groups of people but uh, for me, it's it's become more like a coding type of thing, which is not to say that you don't yeah. want to collaborate with other people, but the remote collaboration thing is the ideal workflow in my from my point of view. Yeah, and I mean, uh, there, I mean, the bedroom producer thing has just there's been a huge uptick in that, and part of it's tooling, and you know, part of it's also just the internet. Really, like it's actually possible. You know, I, I have Google Fiber now here in Utah, and um, you know, I have a friend who lives that I play music with in person sometimes. Um, but we're already thinking, even though we live a few blocks away, about like he's got Google Fiber, I've got Google Fiber. <laughs> the latency is probably good enough that we could just, <laughs> you know, um, just do the, this through our laptops. Yeah. Okay. So I'm sorry, but I interrupted you. Like, where do you think this stuff is going? Like, is it going to be what? Did, what are the bar- in your experience talking to people who are using this stuff? What are the barriers to this being more pervasive? Well, I think it's. I mean, I think this is a really interesting um, time for the music industry as a whole. You know, some people are really pessimistic on the state of the industry. Um, some people are just really optimistic, and I think there's kind of you know, it's it's a really chaotic, creative time. The, the industry is sort of reinventing itself, and the way we make music and listen to music is is radically changing. Um, I think. Um, I mean, we. We at Blend and Rolly, the the parent company of Blend, um, we've kind of been looking at this Instagram phenomenon. You know, like if you think back to ten years ago, you know there was like professional photographers, and then there was everyone else. And like if you didn't, if you weren't, a, you wouldn't just call yourself a professional photographer, or even a photographer. 
um, if you're just a normal person. You had to have all this gear and training, and it was really unapproachable, and um, mm. not very many people felt like they could do it. And then Instagram came along, and all of a sudden, it like you know it it made it relatively easy and accessible for people to um, publish um, photography that they felt good about and that actually looked pretty good. And um, I think that's going to happen for music too. I think there's going to be an Instagram for music, and um, we are actually working on that um, at Rolly. Interesting. Okay. So a separate app. So that makes so much sense because Instagram made these really easy to use filters. The idea of a filter and these uh-huh. and these things that are basically in Photoshop, they're impossible to approach unless you're really good with Photoshop. They they kind of reworked the UI and made it super simple. You can see the same thing happening to music where. Look, a chord progression, you know, like music theory is somewhat um, indecipherable to outsiders. And uh, but if you if you look at it from a scientific point of view, like you can see that oh, this isn't like this. You can systematically break this down. You, know, you can systematically break down music theory. You can um, you know, there's very simple things you can do in terms of uh, mixing. Like you can just say, okay, uh, you know, click the little. Click the toggle for do you want compression or not? Like you don't have to necessarily have a um, you know a, a slider and ha- or you could even have a slider, I guess. And and but have all of the settings on the slider be be good settings. You don't have to have these little areas where if you misconfigure something, it ends up crappy. Like it's really hard to make. Like Instagram pushes you to basically like any anything you add or subtract, it still looks good, um, which you could totally see happening. Right, they've- yeah, they've highly optimized the experience to be really, really accessible to um, you know amateur creators, and I don't think that's been done yet in music. I think you know, and, and that's going back to what you were asking about, you know, like um, talking to people about making music. Um, I think there is that in music that sort of same divide that was there in photography. Where it's like people just—they're almost ashamed. They're like, "Oh, I'm right. not a musician." Right. You know, and then and then when you ask them, they're like, "Oh, well, you know, I was in choir, or I was in band, yeah. or like you know, I play guitar now, or you know, like everyone, everyone kind of is a musician. It's just that they don't think of themselves as a musician because they don't have much to show for it, and they they're not really connected to a larger ecosystem, and they don't have these these sort of tools that um, that give them confidence. Um, but I totally think that's going to happen. Oh, that is a. As an optimistic world, I, I yeah, I, I like that a lot. Um, be, just because I, I mean, I get so much pleasure out of writing music, and I know that the people I know who write a lot of music get so much pleasure out of it too. And the the rare times where I've actually had a collaboration work, uh, that pleasure is, you know, exponentially raised. And I would love to see more people be able to engage with that. Um, oh, it's such a wonderful feeling. Uh, and I think that music even could potentially go beyond, um, you know, beyond what you can do with photography because people don't really remix photos, you know? Like, yeah, you might be able to and, you know, it kind of happens, you know, there's memes and things like that. But, um, you know, it's your Instagram feed is kind of like it's read only, you know, you've, you're throwing things into it that you can write, but like you're not really remixing other things. And I think, um, you know, music potentially is is very different you know it's very exciting to remix things and to feel like you know you took an idea and elaborated on it and you know um i mean i just i remember my first experience on blend when i published a project and you know i used bitwig and i was just learning bitwig and it was it's really basic and not very good but someone actually pulled it and then they did a, a totally different take on it i mean it was kind of like a a Middle Eastern style, like they went in a different direction. And like when I got that notification that someone had, um, you know, remixed my project, it was just the coolest feeling, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So now I'm connecting the dots. So you've built this primitive for this primitive file system for append only, uh, music forking and version control and stuff. And then you can just use that as the back end for whatever the Instagram for music that you're building is. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're taking a lot of the lessons that we've, we've learned on Blend. We're still, you know, developing Blend and, you know, this sync line is coming out soon and all that stuff. 
Um, but we've taken a lot of the lessons that we've learned on Blend and we're applying them to things we're building with Rolly now. Um, and Rolly is an interesting company because um, they do hardware as well. So um, I think that's also an interesting um, kind of dimension to consider things in terms of. is like, you know, you have music hardware and the music hardware has been very disconnected up until pretty recently. Um, now, you know, musicians can use Ableton and like, at least there's some facility for, you know, publishing and collaborating and stuff, but it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of not very well vertically integrated. So really, I think, you know, the future is bright if you can, you know, make awesome music hardware that has awesome music software associated with it. And then also hooks into like an awesome collaborative platform online, um, sort of, you know, like a fully integrated um, music creation and collaboration experience. Definitely. Okay, so just to wrap up, um, I, I enjoyed looking at your LinkedIn profile on the doing the preparation for the show because it was like uh, you spent like eight months at a big company and then one year at another big company and then like three or four years consulting and then a bunch of startups and it's so wide-ranging. You have a really wide-ranging background. You've got networking stuff. You've got embedded systems. There's some NLP and machine learning. And now music technology. So of all the things that you could work on, why have you wound up in the music tech space? Well, I think I kind of found my home eventually. Um, it took me a while to realize that um, I really like startups and small companies. Um, and it kind of took me a while to figure out that, you know, um, I like programming or writing software in certain areas more than others. Um, that's not to say like I necessarily prefer like front-end development or back-end development or embedded development um, to one thing or the other, but I think it does matter you know, what you're building. If you're actually passionate about that, it, you know, it's a reason to wake up and, and just kill it every day. And um, so, yeah, I think um, for, the, for the past... Um, five, six, seven years I've been working on sort of the confluence of tech and art. And I think that's a really awesome uh, place to be. It's really fun. Sure is. Okay, Alan, thanks for coming on the show. I have really enjoyed this conversation and um, I encourage any listeners to check out Blend and I am eager to see what you come out with next. All right, yeah, well, stay tuned. Watch this space. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.